Welcome back to Gridford Chats. Today, Bryce is going to be discussing long-duration energy storage, a key transformational technology, with the CEO of ESS, Eric Dresselhaus. They're going to go into the technology itself, as well as strategies and policy surrounding it. Stay tuned. Welcome to the next episode of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker. Today we have with us Eric Dresselhaus. Eric is the CEO of ESS. Thanks for joining, Eric. Hey, Bryce. Thanks for having me. Eric, I know we've known each other for some time, but you recently joined uh, this year with ESS at the helm. Uh, can you give us a bit of a background on how you ended up there and some of the stuff that's uh, been some career highlights for you? Yeah, sure. Well, I've yeah, I've worked in the energy transition space for you know thirty almost thirty years now. So that you know, you and I met a few lifetimes ago through this. And throughout all of that time, energy storage and specifically long duration energy storage was one of these kind of holy grail things that people were just sure that we were going to need to really make energy transition work. And so I've followed the space for a long time. Uh, and got to know the folks at ESS a few years back. Uh, and through the confluence of a bunch of activities, as they were kind of ramping up their commercial go-to-market uh, plans and, and preparing to go public, um, it, was, it was kind of right place, right time. It's something that I've got a lot of passion for. And you know, my background was a great match for where this company is in its development. And so, you know, I joined back in the spring. It's uh, it's super exciting to be here. There's a ton going on, and and even since I started, it feels like the momentum behind what we're doing has just grown. Thinking about what's happened in the last year and a half, you know, hurt, hurts one's head. Uh, but how are you? How are the folks at the organization doing? Um, especially after you've had such a big month. Well, uh, good. I think people are energized. It's that kind of energy you get when you're really exhausted. The journey of going public is, it's a, it's a trek, right? It, it's months and months of work. It's a huge amount of preparation for everybody in the organization. You kind of get to the end and you, on the one hand, probably want to collapse into a heap. Uh, but, uh, but on the other hand, you're really pumped because, you know, you've, 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 you've achieved this milestone and now you're ready to kind of go to the next level. Yep, great. So, can you share briefly about ESS? Uh, what what is the company? Why would you say that your flow battery chemistry is a game changer? We're providing, as you say, a flow battery, specifically an iron flow battery, and uh, it's uh, it's really its focus is on the four to twenty four hour time frame. So, of course, we all know lithium's been around for a long time, and lithium batteries do a lot of things really well, but, but they have this inherent limitation in duration. You know, four hours is about the maximum you're going to get out of it. And so what people have been clamoring for, particularly as we get higher and higher levels of renewable penetration, is, you know, how do we, how do we create a 24-7 decarbonized system? And you need long-duration storage to do that. Um, and you want to do it with a couple of other characteristics that, that add to the degree of difficulty, right? We want them to be uh, safe. We want them to be non-toxic. You know, we're, we are talking about uh, sustainability here. So you want to build a truly sustainable product. And that's really where the ESS product comes in. It's an iron flow battery. So our key ingredients are iron, salt, and water. Earth abundant, broadly available, no toxicity, and with that, we can create a system that can last for 20 years, uh, cycle 20,000 times, 
and be really the workhorse of the grid to take all of that excess energy that we're that we're building as we as we overbuild solar and wind and make sure that we've got it when the sun doesn't shine and when uh, the wind isn't blowing and uh, and so it's uh, it's really core technology that makes the energy transition happen can you talk a bit about this month's SPAC uh, and how access to the additional resources that being a public company now provides to the future of the organization? Yeah, well, you're, you're right about one thing. The uh, SPACs have been around for a long time, but most people didn't know that they existed. And it's a special purpose acquisition uh, company. Uh, and it's really just a, it, it's a different way to go public than the traditional IPO. Uh, that in our case really worked out well because it allowed us to go faster uh, uh, to get to get into the public market space and uh, have access to that capital. And so, you know, for us, the important thing was uh, how do we have the resources to go and uh, achieve everything that ESS was po- you know capable of achieving uh, without having to worry about fundraising. You know, everybody who's ever run a private company or done venture capital kind of based fundraising knows that that's a, a trickle feed. You know, you get a little bit of money, you go do some good, you got to come back and get some more money. And so it's a very stilted process. We looked at the market, we saw how the evolution and the demand for long duration storage was shaping up. And we said, we've got to go big. And so that's what the SPAC allowed us to do. So we're now fully funded to go achieve uh, our business plan, build out our manufacturing capabilities here in Wilsonville, Oregon, where we build our products and really go execute against this global vision we have uh, to, uh, to create safer, uh, more, more sustainable, more durable uh, energy storage for, for all sorts of folks. My very first job was at InFocus in Wilsonville, so great to hear the, the the manufacturing coming back. Can we take a step back a little bit? You had talked about the fit there being in the four to 24 hour duration space. Um, I think most folks define longer duration over four hours, but how would you define longer duration storage? And, and what does that landscape look like? How is ESS positioned and what's a little bit crowded, but it seems like a lot of earlier stage uh, capabilities? Long duration, in our view, is that four to 24-hour window. Uh, In practicality, most people today are looking for eight to 12-hour duration. And and if you think about why eight to 12, it's because when you pair an eight to 12-hour battery with renewable generation sources, that's how you kind of get to the 24-hour system. If you you had a longer battery, that serves some purposes, but it, uh, it, it isn't the core thing that people are trying to do. It is worth noting that uh, there are people working on what we think of as ultra-long duration storage, which is you know seasonal-level storage, 150 hours, 300 hours. And there's some value in that. It's a very different use case, though. It's something that you're going to use a lot less frequently, but will have a lot of value when you do need it. This is the problem of what happens if the wind doesn't blow for a week, right? That doesn't happen very often, but it can. And so you're talking about creating a 24-7, 365 system at some point during that year, you're probably going to have the need for for a solution that is used infrequently, but has great value. And so there are people working on on energy storage technologies. Of course, there's people working on uh, hydrogen technologies that that can help address that need. But what we do is this intraday thing. So the use cases tend to be around 
uh, bulk shifting. How do I take that bulk energy and shift it hour to hour? In in some places like California, and, and unfortunately, increasingly here in in, uh, in Oregon, we have these things called power safety shutoffs. So people need batteries for for core re- resiliency applications uh, because I need to have power that stays on. Uh, even if the grid is turned off for an extended period of time. Uh, But people also use these batteries, uh, even though they're long duration and their capability, they use them for some of the more short-term applications, which in a weird way you kind of get for free when you buy a long duration battery. So you can do ancillary services, you can bid into capacity markets and things like that when you have a long duration storage. So uh, a lot of the discussion in the battery space these days is what we think of as revenue stacking for the battery owner. How do I not just look at, uh, uh, at a single application, but a variety of applications used in tandem, which creates the overall value proposition for the, for the energy storage? The Biden administration you know, has been talking about getting to a fully decarbonized energy system by, say, 2035, or cutting emissions by 50% over the next uh, couple decades. How important are these federal policy discussions and what will it take to get from where we are now to where where we're going to be? So I, we've seen the news too. We're hopeful. We know that there's a lot of work uh, to do in the uh, in the halls of democracy to get us to a final pass bill. But it is encouraging to see the progress that's been made. I think it's also, frankly, encouraging. I know there's been a lot of controversy around the clean the clean energy plan. But it's it's actually heartening to me that some of the things, the tax credits for renewable energy for storage specifically, are really broadly supported by Democrats and Republicans. And, and so I, I want to take a second to recognize some positive stuff that's happening, uh, that uh, on some provisions of these bills, there's actually quite um, a uniform uh, uh, opinion that these are good things, the right things to do. And the reason I think that's the case is that you know, the biggest challenge that we face is competing against the legacy incumbent solutions, mostly fossil fuel driven, very heavily subsidized. So I, I always cringe a little bit when somebody says, well, why do you deserve a subsidy? All I really want is a level playing field. On a level playing field, uh, our technology compares really favorably. But what we've seen, and we saw this happen uh, during the Obama administration, with the smart grid investment grants, um, just a little bit of money really jump-started uh, the industry. And it also, in addition to helping the economics of, of, of the technology, the other thing that I, that I think happened back in you know, that 2008-9 timeframe was that little bit of federal money kicked all of the state-level regulators in the butt <laughs> and said, holy cow, we better get, uh, if we want to go tap into some of this money, we've got to take a look at the policies, the economic incentives and models that are in place in our state and, um, and do the right things so that uh, the consumers, the, the businesses, the utilities, really all of the particip- market participants in our state um, are, are going to have the, the, the mechanisms to go tap into some of this funding. And so you saw radical changes back in that time frame. Uh, in the regulatory policy around things like smart grid and data and data access that were driven uh, in part by people's desire to tap into smart grid investment grant money. Fast forward to today, I think we're going to see the same thing. I think this this money, it's not enough money to do all the things that we need to do, but it is enough money 
to really drive uh, urgency and action uh, in making sure that we have the right regulatory policies in place. And so I, that's the part I'm probably the most excited about. You had mentioned kind of the level playing field. And, and one of the things that's been really clear over the last few years is that market dynamics, policy drivers, and others have just accelerated wind and solar. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're huge levels of the added capacity on our grid. So, you know, as these types of solutions uh, come online, why is it so especially critical that we invest in, you know, long duration storage and other capabilities? You know, what sort of role does that play in the overall scheme of the energy systems we're starting to build out? Yeah. Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, and this isn't necessarily uh, anything about renewables specifically, it's just what do we expect out of our, our electricity system? Like, what is the average consumer, if you go talk to, you know, the old test of go talk to your grandma about it and see what she says. And 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 at a core level, we really have a, a pretty basic expectation, which is when I flip the switch, the light's going to come on, right? That's It's all built on that. And we, we all know how we're becoming more and more reliant on electricity in modern society because you have an iPhone and a microwave oven and all those other things uh, that just run your daily life. Combine that with the, the call as part of this decarbonization effort you, you mentioned that, it's, um, that we want to electrify everything, right? We want to electrify transportation. We want to electrify buildings. There's a lot of push to get rid of natural gas in buildings. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if, you, if you look at that on a global basis, um, then we also say things like, well, we want to get power to the 800 million people who don't have access to electricity today. And then there's about 2.5 billion people, give or take, in the world who don't have access to clean cooking fuel. And so when you add all of that up and we're going to grow to 9 billion people in population, we're not just talking about decarbonizing this electricity system. We're talking about creating a decarbonized electricity system that's two and a half times the size of the one we have today. That's crazy, right? It's it's become 250% bigger uh, and, and have it be all zero carbon. And so energy storage is critical to making that happen because we are the resiliency key that makes that happen. If you're gonna get people to make 100% transfer to electricity, it's it, our expectations for resiliency and reliability are actually gonna go up, not down. And what's happening today is that resiliency, reliability, the CAFI, MAFI, SAFI metrics are going down. And so there, there's just this really core problem there, which is how do I convince everybody to go 100% electric, get all electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, in a world where they are increasingly not trusting the electricity system to be there? So what kind of a scale are we going to need uh, for these storage solutions? Obviously, to, to make a real impact, you know, even regionally or locally, it's, it's a pretty big scale, far from where we are right now. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. I think you look at it as the as the progression of decarbonization is going to happen over the next uh, period of time. And as you alluded before, the Biden administration has called for 2035. Um, other people uh, have said 2040, I think, is Oregon uh, as a state right now, uh, 2045, 2050 and other states. So, you know, you've got a lot of people coalescing around that kind of a time frame. Right. So I think what you're going to need is you need you need megawatts upon megawatts in the very near term. California alone has said they need 1.4 gigawatts of 
eight to 12 hour long duration storage on the system by 2025, right? That's a lot, <laughs> right? So um, uh, so I think you're gonna see um, uh, uh, it start going from megawatts and tens of megawatts to gigawatts pretty quickly. Um, uh, but if you look at it over a broader set of time, if you say, well, what is it going to have to look like by 2030 or 2040, you know, those kinds of timeframes, you're going to be talking about terawatt hours of long duration storage on a global basis to be able to meet the transitions. And, and that sounds like a lot, but I'm talking about something that represents maybe only 10 to 15 percent of the total electricity consumption needs to be shifted through long duration storage. And if you did that, you get to something in the neighborhood of four to five terawatt hours of energy over the course of that, you know, call it 25 to 30 year uh, timescape. Great. Uh, and we, and we don't, and we don't have anywhere close to a single terawatt today. So, you know, <laughs> that, so it, it's a big hill to climb. A lot of work to do. Let's back up to that topic you mentioned earlier around um, regulatory e evolution um, from the signals coming from the federal government, when you consider, let's just say, state regulation um, and bringing on advanced grid solutions, what thoughts do you have around breaking log jams and ensuring that innovation and, and really the right capabilities get the approvals and the investments that they need? Yeah, well, I'll talk about it within energy storage. Of course, that's a great question that you could apply to a, a lot of different parts of the of the system. I think within storage, the first thing we'd say is that um, you know we we need to value resiliency in any source of supply, right? And if and you, where states have taken that on as part of the integrated resource planning process, um, uh, you you already start to see the shifts. There are a lot of different ways you can trigger it, you know, mechanically within the system. You can put, you know, special kind of tariffs or feeders on kicker fees, excuse me, on on resiliency and standby power and all of that. Of course, a lot of people are are moving towards things like virtual power plants as a way to kind of create an out of market mechanism to do that. But even the basic shift towards time sensitive, think time of day, but it could be more dynamic than time of day pricing will do a huge amount to drive storage. And, and the simple way to think about it is this. If I built out a solar plant, let's say I've got a 100 megawatt solar plant. If I get to sell any time, uh, any time of day, irrespective of demand, and I'm going to get paid a fixed fee for that, that's pretty easy math. I look at the fee, and I look at my radiation levels, and, I, and, I, and my costs, and I, and I make a decision on that. But if that is a dynamic pricing scenario where I'll get paid different prices at different times, maybe I only get paid a penny a kilowatt hour at one o'clock in the afternoon or, or maybe less, uh, but I, I can get paid six or seven cents a kilowatt hour if it's at six o'clock at night, then that allows the market to go react to that. And somebody will do the math and say, hey, it's a better economic deal for me to generate my solar during the day and deliver it to the grid uh, after sunset uh, because I can make those economics work. And you've seen this happen already. There's, you know, there's a lot of in the industry press and things, you know, there people love to call out when we have negative grid pricing, right? That's always makes a headline. If you look at what's happening um, in the Midwest, so and I'm not even talking California and all the really super pro supposedly progressive places. You go to places like Iowa now in the Midwest uh, independent system operator, and they now routinely touch negative grid pricing uh, in the middle of an afternoon because they get a couple of windy days and they have huge more wind than solar in that part of the world. 
But there's just this imbalance between supply and demand. And there's an easy market mechanism to incent people to do the right thing to address that problem. Well, I was in a Senate hearing yesterday, so I can't help but ask, addressing resiliency will take progress in so many areas. What are some aspects that you have close proximity to that you think we can make some maybe nearer term progress to mitigating the impacts of these disturbances? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of them, but the couple of that come to mind immediately is we get a lot of pull from clients, uh, in some cases, utilities, in some cases, you know, municipalities who are trying to build microgrids. So they're trying to move resiliency closer to the edge, right? That's maybe the theme that goes behind that. There's a lot of ways you can think about building resiliency. You could try to build more central generation uh, and, uh, and, and beef up the transmission lines uh, to, to, to ensure the power gets there. But I think the biggest thing we're seeing right now is people want to move resiliency out to the edge. And if you think about from a systems um, design perspective, uh, the, the less centralized you are, you can build resiliency into the system by pushing more assets, more resources out further towards the end use, towards the edge. So we have, you know, it, it can be a large commercial industrial customer or a big government building with critical supply. And they just want to put storage right on site. And they'll say, hey, I'll, uh, we've, we have clients that say, I want to be totally off grid or use the grid only for occasional backup uh, because I feel the best if I control uh, all of those resources. So I'm going to put solar panels on my roof. I'm going to put some micro wind generation in my backyard, uh, in my, at my factory. And then I'm going to put some long duration storage. And that combination, is it a, is it a microgrid or a mini grid or you can call it? Because they're their own grid at that point. And they can get to uh, a very high probability 24-7 uh, off-grid solution that's entirely green, by the way, as a, as a side benefit. But, but they'll do it simply to get resiliency. And then you kind of step back from that and you'll see people doing it at a community level. One of the things we've heard from a lot of people who have implemented microgrids is the lack of long duration storage has really kept them from realizing the full, the full potential, the full dream of what they thought their microgrid would be. Because it mostly works most of the time without the long duration storage. But again, that's not good enough, right? It's kind of got to work all of the time for it to be acceptable for the people who live in that area. I'm still kind of amazed at the lack of visibility that we have on the status of our of our grid. Um, so maybe you can share some thoughts around how important you think real-time situational awareness and grid analytics are going to play. And maybe if you want to get into some of the details on the role that, you know, battery management systems you think play in into the future of the grid. Sure. Well, I, uh, first off, I would share your disappointment. If you would have asked me in 2000 four or five when when we started Silver Spring Networks and it was ramping up, if you would have said, where do you think we'll be in 2021? I, I might have said, well, further along than where we are. <laughs> um, and it's not because the technology doesn't exist. That's not our problem, right? We know how to do this. It's, it's eminently doable. It's again, back to the policy issue of making sure that that's prioritized and that the information is, um, you know, is made available to all of the users. I would call out as a, a, a hopeful, maybe green shoot in this stuff. Uh, what's happening in New York right now is really pretty encouraging. NYSERDA is leading a project for, for the Department of Public Service in New York around grid information 
that is got some good promise to it. So I'm going to be hopeful that we're making we're making progress. I, you know, I'm an economist by training uh, that spends all my day working with engineers. And you know, my view is if we just have the information and we make it available and we put the right market mechanisms in place, all of these problems are solvable. Batteries will fit into that. Battery management systems will fit into that. And I, I'm going to split battery management systems into two parts. There's literally at the battery the thing that manages the performance of the battery. And, and that's pretty well known. And we know how to do that. But having market mechanism software, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the VPP software that knows how to make the right decision between uh, what the potential economically and resiliency wise for, um, for, for that battery or any asset, any distributed asset, really, uh, what, it could be a car, it could be a building, it could be a battery. Um, we need a lot more of that um, because that actually will help drive adoption because it, it helps the economic model of batteries. The more ways that my customers can use the battery to play in the market, the more they can optimize the use of that battery in the market, the more that battery's worth. And they'll wanna buy more batteries. And you know that's the flywheel that we're all working towards here. Yeah, who even needs a battery? Can you share a little bit about some of your customers and what you're learning about why they're putting these systems in? Yeah, well, it turns out a lot of people need batteries. So we have uh, commercial industrial customers, as I mentioned, factories. We have a customer who's an electronics recycling company that's gone totally green. They're going to get totally off grid. So we have those kinds of customers. We have the community solar uh, and microgrid customers. Uh, some of those are independents, you know, communities, or in some cases, they're actually utilities, right? We have utilities who are building microgrids in California to create resiliency around critical infrastructure uh, because of the power safety shutoff problem. And, and it turns out that those microgrids can, can be really valuable uh, in terms of when there are safety issues, weather issues, they get used. And when they're not, they can be used for just bulk shifting and, and playing in the markets. And then the last big group are the people who are building the large scale, you know, grid scale uh, renewable systems. All of those people are, are very quickly shifting to combined uh, solar storage, wind storage, because it's a much better economic uh, mechanism for them uh, than doing standalone solar or wind. Yep. Uh, another different topic. I know you all are hiring a ton right now. Um, how do we bring the talent pipeline into the sector? Um, how do you get you all get the people you need to do the work you're doing? How do you inspire the, the employees there to bring their best self? Maybe a few different types of questions around the talent that we need in the industry. Yeah, well, we need a lot. So anybody that's listening that works, you could be an engineer, you could be an accountant, uh, you could be a manufacturing person. Uh, we need everybody. So please go visit ESS and, and see what jobs are available. You know, we're trying to pull something off here with really high quality, good paying manufacturing jobs here in the U.S. Uh, that bucks the trend of all of this stuff being offshore. So we need a ton of people to do that. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, just you talk about inspiring people, um, and, and we certainly try to encourage and inspire, share the vision of where we're going. Uh, I think the thing that's really exciting to me is especially younger people, people in their 20s, early 30s, when they come, they bring that to the party. You know, they, they get it already. They are people who are making a conscious choice, good job that pays well, you work with great people. 
but they love the fact that they are making a difference, that they are going to have an impact, a positive impact on the world. And so I'm amazed as I meet some of you know the new people that have joined, the younger people that have joined, they, they get that uh, in their bones. And, and I can tell you for sure that you know 20 years ago, uh, that wasn't always the case. COP26 is literally right around the corner and there's some big hopes for the meeting at the international scale. Um, will be interesting to see what Biden gets to come with in hand uh, and the global geopolitics that, uh, that, that take form there. But what are your hopes that come out of that? Uh, what, what might we see out of the international conversations these next few days? Yeah, well, I'm going. Uh, so I'm going to go for part of it, at least. And my hopes are, are, are I'll say, high, but, uh, but uh, maybe a little muted because of you know, the fact that, as you say, it's politics. Um, what I find the most encouraging about it, I don't know what, what the president will be able to come with. I don't know how these discussions in Washington will go. I, I certainly appreciate Putin says he's not coming at all, right? Uh, so we've got you know a variety of opinions around the world. What I think is the most encouraging about where COP has gotten to now is that private industry, NGOs, people that aren't the government are making that a focal point to come and get stuff done and do work and make commitments. So uh, I'd, I'd caution all of our political leaders that you know they're kind of falling behind. There's no leadership coming broadly uh, from them. Leadership is coming from the bottom up. And so for anybody that's on uh, listening in uh, on our discussion here, I would say don't wait for someone to give you permission to help improve the world. Go off and help improve the world on your own. Get all your friends together and go yeah. make a difference. So I take on a project. You know, it doesn't, if you, if you, if you look at the enormity of all the problems, it can be overwhelming. And so, you know, like any big problem you, you've got to take on, uh, the right answer is just get in the game. How fast do you see this unfolding and what role does storage and other grid flexibility and advanced solutions play here in the short term? Well, I think uh, I'm, I'm here. You can't see me, but I'm looking at my crystal ball and my crystal ball tells me it's happening at an increasing rate uh, all of the time. The speed is picking up. I, I actually think it's really helpful, uh, whether it's at a national level or a state level, to have these goals of 2035 or 2040 for decarbonization up because I think people really want a target. And then they can start to back into a plan that says, hey, I got to do it at this pace to get to that endpoint by that date. Uh, so I think it's, it's happening faster. I think the burden that is on ESS and really all technology providers that are, that are working in this space is we have to um, you know, demonstrate that we're delivering the goods. Having real products that really work is the most important thing that we can do. So we, we hang our hat on that at ESS. Uh, that this isn't something we're talking about having someday. We're, we're building products, we're shipping products, they work, and we need everybody across this uh, landscape to build more products, better products, less expensive products to to drive the transition because the, it, it's a two-way street, right? The, the pace of change will be in some part driven by the quality of the tools we have to make that change happen. And so let's all go build better tools. Eric, thanks for the time. Congrats on on being the first long duration storage public company and, and sharing your perspectives with us. Great. Always a joy to talk. Keep up your good work. Uh, uh, we're getting there. <laughs> thanks. Take care.